Hello and welcome to episode number 77 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we're going to be spending the first half of the episode talking about fantasy versus fantastic, which Simon will explain shortly. Um, and then the second half, we're going to be comparing two books that have recently um, been released by Simon. What's the name of the press? Um, the third Middleborough series from Dean Street Press. Thank you so much. Um Wine of Honour by Barbara Beecham and Beneath the Visiting Moon by Romilly Cavan. And they're part of a new release that's all to do with World War II themed books. So that's the connection between those two. Mm. So, so Simon, first of all, how are you? What are you reading? I'm good, thanks. As I just warned you, I have just woken up for a minute. So <laughs> I'm slowly, I'm drinking a cup of tea. I'm slowly coming back to... Um, okay. I don't know what the word is. I'm clearly not coming back Life. to it, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I good. I'm reading quite. I've been reading a lot of really good books at the moment, um, which is nice, obviously. Uh, and one of those, the one I'm reading right now, is called um, "Notes Made While Falling" by Den Ashworth, Ooh. which I don't think has been published yet. It's a review copy. Um, have you read any Jen Ashworth? I don't believe I have. No. She's um, she's previously just done novels, and um, I've read the. F- I read started with the first one, which was called a kind of intimacy that did quite well um and she's done some really interesting quite varied topics over the years but this is non-fiction and it's essays sort of put together into a memoir i guess but um they're not really it's not really quite essays or quite memoir it's, it's very genre busting uh oh. and yeah it's sort of a look at um illness and creativity and growing up in a very strict mormon household and all these sorts of things whirling together and it's just amazing writing uh yeah. it's yeah i really really Im- impressed and um you can sort of see similarities in the writing style to her novels but i i feel like this might be her metier it's just such powerful and interesting writing and i i think it helps I, I met her once at an event and she's really lovely so i know know her a, a tiny bit as well which i think helps with these sorts of things but yeah i'd really recommend that to people when it comes out which i think is later in october or november Oh, exciting. I should look out for it. Yeah. Um, how about you? How are you? What are you reading? It feels like ages since we've done this. What's, yeah, what's, no, it, what's it has been, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's been school. Sorry. Um, back to the grindstone. All my summer days of lounging around are gone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of reading to do for school, actually. Um, but I've, I've just finished The Testaments of E. Margaret Atwood, which I'm sure uh, you'll know from my rather scathing review that I did not enjoy. Yes. Um, I mean, what a disappointment, frankly. Um, yes, those of us who didn't like The Handmaid's Tale had, didn't have very high expectations. So, but, no, well, um, I very much yeah. did like The Handmaid's Tale, and I love Margaret Atwood in general. I've never read a, a duffer from her, so reading something like that doesn't even read like she wrote it, it's very bizarre. Um, yeah, it feels, yeah, just like really second-rate. Um, so rather disappointing. But, you know, there you are. I, I tried it. I bought into the hype. <laughs> you did. I shouldn't have done. <laughs> not often in the zeitgeist, Rachel, and now you'll no, learn never to be. Exactly. I mean, I'll <laughs> never buy a book that comes out again. Um, so I don't really know. And I've just literally finished reading today the books we're reading for the podcast that we're going to discuss on the podcast today. So I don't know what I'm going to... Oh, actually, I do know what I need to read next. I need to read To the Lighthouse, reread To the Lighthouse. Oh, right. I should be teaching it and um, oh, nice. shortly and haven't reread it yet. So, 
Yes. Well, a book I have just, I want to recommend and have just finished, which I loved, is called The Life and Crimes of Agatha Christie by Charles Osborne. Yeah, so it's, I think it's probably for people who read quite a lot of Christie, but not necessarily all. I don't know. I've read about half of her novels and I loved it. And it goes through her career, novel by novel, uh, talking about what she was up to at that stage of her life, what sort of novel it is, what the public thought at the time, how whether or not it's been adapted it was this was written in the early 1980s so a lot of the adaptations aren't in there but um yeah really fascinating he's such a knowledgeable person charles osborne about about christie and about um yeah mostly about the novels but also about her life as well amazing well since i went to her house this summer i've become a little bit obsessed with her so it's um that will suit me nicely it's it's such a winter thing to do as well isn't it i feel like Mm, it's here now for a good old murder mystery it really is isn't it you sort of settle in by a fire find Mm. out why someone kills someone else (laughs) just what we need and it was revised and updated in 2000 i think my edition's the older one so i'm not sure what was added but um if you you are after a coffee you might want to go for a more recent version than the one i've got good advice yeah Mm. Mm. um do you want to explain to everybody what you mean by um, fantasy and fantastic, seeing as this is your specialist topic, I and I'm, abs- I'm about to drift off for five minutes. <laughs> I'll give you a code word or something to come back later. <laughs> but, um, I absolutely will, and it is um, sort of a, a world rife with confusing terminology. And um, as people, as this is may know, I wrote my PhD thesis on fantastic literature, but reading fantasy theorists. I learned that everybody uses these terms differently. So the way that we are going to use them today, the the Thomas method, <laughs> which, which I think I stole from Eric Rabkin, um, but um, is fantasy is stuff set in a world different from ours, and fantastic is stuff that is set in this world, but where elements of fantasy happen. So that's a very, very short and concise separation of the two. Very uh, much so, yeah. If you're wondering where magical realism fits in, which Rachel, I'm sure you was on the tip of your tongue, mm. um, the <laughs> the difference that a lot of people posit between the fantastic and magical realism is that characters are surprised by it in fantastic novels, whereas they're not surprised by it in magical realism. So they just sort of adapt it into into their understanding of the world. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and that's um, a very clear. Um, explanation of, of the different types. All, all all books that I don't like, um, <laughs> as a rule. Magical realism, particularly. Yes, I have issues with magical realism that we're not, I mean, we won't address that too much today, <laughs> we'll I guess. Into that, but, will we know? Yeah, I, just, I recently read the, the Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, which I thought was terrible. Mm. Well, I really liked the writing at first, and then he just, I don't know, he got very full of platitudes and someone turned into the wind so (laughs) (laughs) i signed out (laughs) yeah sorry paulo if you're listening but um or paulo i don't know that's your name even but anyway yeah i think we're all right (laughs) (laughs) yes he's fine he doesn't care what i think about his books my book did it and none of us liked it so we had a nice evening of just tearing it apart together it's always nice but everyone dislikes it isn't it yes thankfully the person who suggested it to whom it meant quite a lot i think was too ill to come that evening (laughs) which is a blessing in disguise how magical yes (laughs) uh right so you say you dislike them um 
do you like dislike them? Well, no one can sit right to the end, but um, what what is it about them in general? You just like other things separately in Fantastic and Fantasy that put you off, or are there examples that you like of each? Go. Um, well, the thing is, I just much prefer reading books about stuff that's realistic, essentially. So I can, if if I know what I'm getting into before I start reading it, I can sort of, and I can put my common sense to the one to one side then I, most of the time I can enjoy myself so for example as we all know I very much enjoyed Miss Hargroves in the end um did, yes <laughs> and and I think I enjoyed that because it was the character was obviously fantastical but at the same time she still felt quite real so mm. I could still believe in her as a person um and I think I remember reading The Love Child that you gave me several years ago. Edith mm. Olivia is an author, right? That's right, yeah. And again, I didn't dislike that because the character, the child felt very real. And once you'd forgotten the, the aspect that this child had just literally turned up one day and the doorstep and was obviously not real, or but was real at the same time, that's the thing. They, they, she was a real child. Mm. Um, and she behaved in a way that children should behave so i think in those more sort of 1920s 30s fantastical fantastic fantastic novels um i i can get behind those more than a fantasy novel because those are real people that well people who behave like real people living in a world that i recognize and once i've accepted that whimsical quality of oh this is all a little bit you know unusual and strange and we're we're operating outside the realms of reality i can still enjoy it because it's still a world that I know whereas fantasy novels I am just not interested in at all all of the nonsense with like the made-up names and the made-up countries and you know armies of of orcs and whatever <laughs> they want to call them and and it's always to do with wars and battles yeah, and it just yeah. goes on and they're so long I just can't be bothered and I can't remember what anyone's called and I just don't <laughs> care it's just I just I really just don't care like, I don't understand Game of Thrones I don't understand why everyone loves Game of Thrones so much I don't I don't want to watch stuff with dragons in it. I'm not 12. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I just, I just don't get it. It's, it's something, and it's, it's interesting actually because I was never interested in that kind of thing. The only series or you know books that I've enjoyed that that as a child that had magical elements in it was Harry Potter, and that was it. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot there, and I think I yeah. completely agree with almost all of it. And I think just to say for people who haven't read The Love Child. Uh, what it's about um, is this single woman uh, accidentally conjures her childhood imaginary best friend to life while, when she's an adult, or that she's still an adult, the child is a child. And what one of the things I um, love about that novel, and I think is what you were trying to ex- express there as well, is that it isn't taking you to this world of completely separate emotions and completely separate mm. um, consequences, but it's illuminating how she feels as an unmarried women without Absolutely. children in that society uh yeah and i think there's, I mean, there's a lot of novels about spinsters from the 20s and 30s i love my spinster lit you know that yeah, <laughs> um, as do i as do you um and i think yeah authors who are able to use elements of the fantasy to sort of jolt the reader out of their um, understanding of the world and illuminate part of the real world um it's just a really interesting to me technique um which I don't find interesting when, as you say, it's big battles between people with 
fantasy powers or whatever. Uh, and it's funny what you said about names. My my one experiment with J.R.R. Tolkien was trying to read The Hobbit, and I remember giving up when I got to a list of Hobbit names or Goblin names or something where they were called like Druren and Fleurin and Mleurin. And I was like, no, absolutely <laughs> not. I'm out. Like, why can't you just call them James and Tom? And like, it wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't make this novel any different creatively and it would make it a lot easier to read (laughs) yeah it's it's fascinating actually to me the huge following that lord of the rings has i mean i struggled through it at university because i did a course on it compared it was um old english and looking at the they tried to make old english trendy by showing (laughs) um the old english inspiration behind tolkien's work so we looked at both of them and looked at the connections between the two and, you know, the old English stuff, I can get behind that. This is, a uh, you know, thousands of years ago, people who lived in a world that they didn't understand and in order to, to kind of put words to their fears, they used monsters and things like that because they didn't know any better. Um, Hundreds then, of years ago, maybe. Thousands of years ago. History is not my strong point. I'll <laughs> get beyond the 19th century, but whatever. Um, and... You know, fair enough. Like I can understand that they're actually Simon. I think you'll find that the story itself is much older than the written version. Oh, I do beg um, your pardon. I can't beg yes. your pardon enough. Um, but it's. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> that's fine. Just in a typical man Mid-flow. trying to correct a woman, yes, he oh, then gosh, finds out oh, actually he was wrong. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's by the by. Um, it's interesting to me that Tolkien wanted to recreate that world in the, I mean, it's 1940s, I suppose, isn't it? Well, around the war time. I actually don't know. I have no idea. This is a completely factory conversation. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting in that sort of revival of that world that he was so interested in, obviously, being a scholar of the period himself, and he wanted to recreate that. And that obviously has captured the imagination of quite literally millions of people, mm-hmm. either through reading the books or through accessing it via the films now, which have, have become just as famous. And then you've got like the whole Game of Thrones thing. And clearly, this is something that a lot of people find fascinating i mean particularly as well young adult books they're mainly all fantasy books now if you go and look at them in the bookshops they're all about dragons or witches and they're all these enormously long series of books that take place over years and years of all these battles and people in different kind you know these made-up countries and whatever and people seem to love them and i feel like i'm on the outside looking in and i don't understand that's i mean it's, yeah, it's, it's a different me- it's sort of writ large what the reason that I don't get on with historical fiction, which I, I know you don't have as much of a problem with, but um, the, the, it just loses that authenticity to me. I want people to write about the place or the country they're living in at the time they're living in it. And <laughs> <laughs> essentially, if, if people aren't doing that, then I, I feel like I'm it's through too many prisms or something. I just lose that sense of vitality in a novel, which when it's historical is you know, a few years back, whatever. But when it's fantasy, I've just lost every sense of connection between the author Mm. and the characters. And defenders of it will say that it's a great way to explore human character through all these different creations. Um, And I know that my brother is a big fan of the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. He says that it's very revealing about character. I read the first one and... I mean, I shouldn't judge all fantasy novels by that, but it was one of the most boring books I've ever read. (laughs) It was so slow. I also have issues with any, you know, the typical quest narrative, I guess, because the book was can essentially be summed up with 
walk obstacle overcome obstacle walk obstacle overcome obstacle it's like well, yeah you know i didn't wonder if they were going to die in the next obstacle encounter because i knew there were another 12 books in the series so <laughs> pretty sure well, they're yeah and, and that's the thing you you know what's going to happen they're very predictable and there's always one character who dies who is like you really like them but you cannot also cope with the fact that they're dead so you you pretty much can guess in each book who's going to be the one <laughs> he's going to get you know killed in battle or sacrificed themselves for someone else and it's just you know it's all very medieval it's all very walter scott i just don't care yeah and, and, the, and to go to more positive things um <laughs> as you know it's, been, it's no secret that i love miss hargraves mm-hmm. uh, but there, there are others from that period like lady into fox by david garnett where a woman turns into a fox um that yeah, i've never read that oh it's it's um would you like it i think maybe it's it's interesting in that it's written in a sort of 18th century style for some of it it's, and it's very yeah. openly sort of trying to be i know defoe-esque sort of thing but um and it's very short but uh, i i wrote about it as as paralleling different understandings of women's sexual role in marriage at the time as people were starting to acknowledge in the 20s that women might actually enjoy sex rather than just you know lying back and thinking of england but um gosh so lots lots of books at the time coming out like guides for marriage or sort of thing um which i which i enjoyed reading <laughs> and then yeah novels that were that couldn't confront that completely literally often because of you know the mores and the way that um, well, I say that. I mean, things like The Shake by E.M. Hull, which I think was 1919 that came out, where... Very um, sexy. Very sexy, but, I mean, in a horrifying way, because this woman is repeatedly raped by someone who she then falls in love with. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, ter- terrible. Yeah. But but not coy, not, you know, discreet or anything like that, anything we might expect from a 1910s novel. But something like Lady and Fox is a way of discussing that, and which won't get black-penned by the censor at any point. And I think there was there was a lot of it going on in the twenties and thirties, which was very useful for me. Medieval. In fact, one of the um, one of the Dean Street Press new books, I think, was a bit later, something in the forties, but they just print, um, published Miss Carter and the Ifrit by Susan Alice Kirby. I think her name. Oh was. yes, I saw that. Yeah, I thought yeah. Oh, that'll be right up Simon Street. And it I was. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so an Ifrit of those. Who don't know? Which I think is probably everyone. Because I, <laughs> uh, I think it's a name that she maybe made up. I don't know, but it's sort of like a, it's a gin, which again I haven't come across. But it's a essentially a genie, but often part of Islamic uh, folklore, I think. Mm. Um, but basically, someone who has powers and can grant wishes in broad brushstrokes. But she, he turns up, and one of the reasons I I love that, which I think the Fantastic is really good at doing, is that it's um, he he comes and disrupts all these supernatural powers and he's got he belongs in a world of folklore but she um miss carter very much belongs in that modern day and she doesn't change from that she's she finds it embarrassing that he's very over the top she worries what the neighbors will think she's trying to hide him from her friend all the sorts of things that you might do if if an ifrit did turn up and start you know, <laughs> transforming your your living room into a bedouin tent sort of thing um and that's what, yeah, why I really love the Fantastic because it doesn't. It's still tethered to reality, uh, but it doesn't, and it has a sort of infusion of something new and exciting that doesn't transform a narrative into something completely unconnected to reality. It just gives you a new perspective on reality, or, or gives characters a an opportunity to re-examine their reality. I guess. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting that it's all of these books came out and were clustered around the same time period. And I think that's there's a lot to be said about using the fant- fantastic as a way to explore perhaps hidden desires or um, wishes or hopes that couldn't be expressed in other ways. And you've got that kind of. I think there's a real cluster of, of those books as well, like Lolly Willows as well, mm-hmm. for example, thinking about alternative ways of life for women. And I think particularly those books do tend to be either written by women or about women. And if you're thinking about it from a post-war perspective, you can think about these books as being an opportunity for uh, to see how women's lives could be different. Like All of these women who are in these fantastic books are behaving in these very eccentric ways. And if they if they were real in inverted commas, they wouldn't be allowed to behave in that way. But because they're not, they're not real. They're these fantastic creations. Their behavior is, is more permissible, I suppose, in a way, which is interesting to me anyway. Yeah. And I think because it, particularly because it was a shifting time of, of morality, particularly affecting women. And, um, a lot of these fantastic things are looking at things like, um, sex or childlessness or so yeah issues that more affected women than men at the period and that was how they were able to talk about it i think you're right it often does look at women's lives and i was trying to think of more post-war or modern examples that i knew and i couldn't come up with a huge number but i did read um the girl with glass feet by ali shaw a while ago which is about a woman who is slowly turning into glass which um i did enjoy i don't remember a huge amount about it but it was and isn't there that um, book called Snow Child? That's the other one I was going to mention, yeah, by Erin oh. Ivy. Not sure yeah. exactly how to pronounce her name. Um, and I can't remember if that one is set in current day or not. I think it is, and it's about a couple who want a baby and they can't have one, isn't it? And then this child appears made of snow or something. Exactly, yeah, which is, a, a, I think, a Russian fairy tale. Um, very, very moving novel set in Alaska. In fact, I'm just about to start her next book which was published quite a while ago, but my book group's doing it um, to the bright edge of the world. Oh. Which, again, is Alaska, but I don't know anything else about it. Um, yeah, and I think I, there's probably more that are directly related to fairy tales and mythology in that way, um, or they keep that sort of overtone to them in a way that maybe they didn't earlier, but maybe that's not enough examples to make that conclusion based on. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Mm. Whereas fantasy, certainly, yes, as you say, is continuing apace, particularly in young adults. I don't know if there's that many that are, that are aimed at more at adults than not. Um, but well, I, I, I just, did, I think, yeah. I mean, whenever I, I see people on the tube reading or, you know, out and about reading, m- most people seem to be reading fantasy books. Okay, well. Especially men. I think men find something... Um, it seemed that a lot, of, and a lot of these books seem to be marketed at men. If you look at the covers and the colours that they use and the images that they use, they're very much designed for um, the adult fantasy books. Anyway, are aimed at a masculine audience, and you can kind of tell that by the way that women are treated in fantasy books. That's my yes, feminist comment of the day. Well, there is a bit of thread of misogyny, and yes, yeah. in, um, well, I say that without having read them, but, but based on my understanding, I mean, Game of Thrones, from what yeah. I understand, doesn't seem like a feminist polemic. No. <laughs> um, the only fantasy books I have really enjoyed, like you, I really liked Harry Potter, but I'm also the Chronicles of Narnia, big fan of those. Oh, yeah, everyone loves a bit of Narnia, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what, what the difference with those is, other than they're 
very openly aimed at children, those series, and maybe yeah. that I find easier to get on board with. Um, yeah, well, I think as well um, with Narnia, obviously there's an allegory going on there, so yeah. it's not just what it appears on the surface. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting for me because I've I find it absolutely bemusing that so many people love fantasy books, and I, I really can't get my head around why. Um, fantastic has been something that I've I've come to appreciate more certainly and mm. I, it, I and I wouldn't not read a fantastic book uh, just because it were fantastic whereas no matter how interesting a fantasy book seemed to me I still wouldn't pick it up yeah I mean I'm definitely the same and I don't but well I mean more so in that I will rush towards a fantastic novel and <laughs> I, I have never really worked out quite why I love them so much other than perhaps because I read a handful, including Miss Hargraves, at a, you know, an impressionable age and, <laughs> and, and discovered that those are the sorts of things I love. If I'm reading a blurb and it's, uh, you know, a, norm, a normal reality domestic novel, I'm very into those. But then if I see that there is this twist to it, then that'll just spark my imagination a lot more. Um, I guess maybe because it, it just, it is that sort of burst of life and, and something unusual into the normal setting that I think, oh, that's going to be interesting. What's going to happen with that? Um, Yeah, I don't know. But if anyone has any suggestions, unless it is something set in the 20s or 30s that I should have known about for my default, (laughs) then it'll be too upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) But if it's set outside of those times. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I think... I I don't know why it is... And we can mention magical realism, but I don't know... I think the reason that I don't get on with magical realism in the way that I get on with the fantastic is that more often than not, it doesn't have those parameters. So what I like about the fantastic is that there is one, maybe two fantastic things in there, and then that's it. And you know that the novel is going to explore how that affects the world. And I like to have those parameters to what is going on. Whereas if there's no parameters and anything can happen at any time, then I just feel like I've lost the momentum to the novel and I've lost the sense of sort of caring what happens to the character, because I think, well, if then if anything could happen, then then why would I empathise with what is happening to them currently? Because, you know, they could be magically healed, or they could go back in time, or you know, it, it wouldn't... There's, I guess, lower stakes if if there's yeah. no... Um, yeah, if there's no narrative, single narrative thrust, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, having said that, I've not read a huge amount of magical realism, but, yeah, the ones I have read baffled me. Yes, I think we, we both just like having our feet firmly on the ground, don't we? Yeah, so aren't we? Be <laughs> um, <laughs> in that way. <laughs> yeah, but well, yes, it sounds like we are much on the same page. Yes, um, say no more. <laughs> Uh, if, if anyone can think of a fantasy novel that might change our minds, then feel free to let us know, and I suspect neither of us will read it. <laughs> no, it won't change our minds, but there we are. Uh, before we go on to the second half, you may recall, yes, you, listener and Rachel, that we are doing our Simon and Rachel advice section. Oh. Yes. And Sydney uh, put in a question in our Patreon asking for suggestions for where we should, where a reader should start with the catalogues of Persephone and Slightly Foxed. Oh, well, Slightly Foxed I'm not as familiar with. Um, but Persephone, I mean, my advice to people with Persephone is always start with the Dorothy Whipple, because if you don't like Dorothy Whipple, then I don't think you'll like the rest of it. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, okay. Um, I think that's fair to say for some Dorothy Whipple. I think 
because some some of the ones they've published aren't as good as others. I think if no, you that's very yeah. true. Actually, yes, that's a very good point. But um, something like someone at a distance, I think, if you don't like that, you probably won't like Persephone. Yeah, well, they they knew Mister Knight. They're probably mm-hmm. they for my favourite is Greenbanks. Oh yes, which I read before of Persephone and don't remember anything about, so I should go back. <laughs> Wonderful, but yeah, I think Dorothy Buffett is probably the classic. Um, and I, I think that also she's a novelist that you're not going to come across elsewhere. So I think it's really valuable to read those. And then personally, I think the, the Persephone's that are strongest are the the World War Two era ones. Um, there's some really interesting ones there. I think probably one of my favourite ones is, I'm not going to remember the name or the author, but if I describe <laughs> it, you'll know and you'll Don't tell read me. That, Sydney. Yes, go for um, it. The one that they're in the house during the war, and there's the woman who ha- who owns the house, and people come and stay there. Is that the house in the country by Jocelyn Playfair? Yes, Tis. See, he knew. There we are. <laughs> he how connected we are, everyone. <laughs> Which I is think... a very good one. It's a bit darker than some of the other yeah. movies, but yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, I think I would. Along similar lines, I think I'd say Hostages to Fortune by Elizabeth yes, Cambridge. Yes, I love that too. Which is brilliant, and it's a sort of um, the life of a of a doctor's wife in the Oxfordshire countryside um, which is a brilliant novel on its own terms but it's also much like Dorothy Whipple's sort of quintessential Persephone in that something like Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day by Winifred Watson we both love that book but it is a a little bit of an outlier I guess in tonally for Persephone Mm. where I mean absolutely read it but I think it wouldn't give you as good an impression of what's going on overall Um, but I think particularly if you're looking at novels that they published in the first 10 years that they were around you it's hard to go wrong they've yeah about, there's some later that i like a bit less or that are a bit like when they republish novels from the 80s or something they're good novels but they're not they don't feel very persephone to me <laughs> no i wouldn't i would i wouldn't say that i would be 100 percent confident i'd always love everyone yeah. you do have to you do have to pick um pick pick and choose though sometimes you can be surprised i've been surprised Right. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, Still Missing by Beth Gutch, Beth Gutchen, maybe? Oh my goodness, I cried and cried. Yeah, brilliant book, but very, doesn't feel like a Persephone book. Oh, but anything, anything by Marguerite Lasky, of course. Very good point, another good choice. And the, indeed, The Victorian Chase Long is a fantastic novel as well. Mm, there we are. In every sense. Um, and Slightly Fox, as you say, I've read more. I think, um, I mean, my favourites are Look Back With Love by Dodie Smith and Blue Remembered Hills by Rosemary Sutcliffe that I know you weren't as much a fan of. No. But, um, but I mean, they're quite varied, the sorts of memoirs they do. They're all memoirs, and I have don't think I've read any that I didn't think were great. But those those ones are the sort of gentlest and nicest. Where they do some that are more... Um, not not you know gory or anything but i, I was a stranger by mm, john something i'll put it in the show notes but um which is all about <laughs> being hidden in a in a house during the war so i think it's a soldier in holland maybe um is a lot more sort of tense but or still very good but um yeah i probably start with with either Sutcliffe or the smith yeah. but um i mean they've, they've also republished things like 84 charing cross road which is you know there's a lot of editions of these around, but that is a wonderful book. Wonderful book. And in fact, I'm just about to read one of theirs, Corduroy by Adrian Bell. For the oh, I love that club. book. Oh, you read it? Is it good? It's really good. Uh, You'll love it. You'll absolutely I'll love it. see up my street. Yeah. Yes. Well, I hope that helps, Sydney. Let us know yep. uh, which Thanks one's for you. Thanks for asking. Bye.
Um, and she lives, I'm going to say she, but maybe he, I mean, who knows, um, lives in Western Canada. So oh, how exciting. So can get hold of them there. Um, yeah, let us know what you've gone with. Yeah. Maybe it is a he. Can he be a female Sydney? I yes, you can. The, Mi- the Mitford's mother was called Sydney. Oh, yes, she was, wasn't In she? fact, the only Sydneys I've ever known have all been female. Oh, I don't think I've ever known a Sydney. Yeah, there was someone at work called Sid who was a woman, but I think that's just a name she made up. Oh, well, maybe it isn't Simon. Maybe her name is Sydney. <laughs> someone, someone told me that. It wasn't just me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so. oh if you would like to have your question asked here, if you'd like some advice, do get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com. Later in the episode, you'll hear me say that nobody's emailed yet, but it turns out I just hadn't worked out how to do the forwarding properly. So many thanks to those who have emailed. And yeah, if you've got anything you'd like to get in touch about, that's the best place to do it. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books, where there are various reward levels. Many thanks to those who do, with a special thanks to Elizabeth, Mark, Randy, Gracie, Liana, Heather, and Michelle. We really appreciate it. Do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's called now, isn't it? Uh, That really helps people find us. Um, And yeah go back to the second half now and maybe just heard Hargreaves meowing in the background hmm he's usually here right bye great so second half we picked a couple of the new furred middlebrow books as Rachel says Rachel which would you like to introduce us to oh I really don't mind so you can choose okay um I will go for Beneath the Visiting Moon then okay. uh, by Romilly Cavan which um, it comes with rec- with comparisons to Guard Your Daughters and I Catch the mm-hmm. Castle on the back, with which I love, so I was excited to read it. And it's about the Fontaine family. There's four siblings, Sarah, Philly, Christopher, and Tom, who are living in a, in a mansion also called Fontaine, but uh, down on their luck financially, and they're trying to find someone to buy it as the novel opens. And prospective uh, people who look like they might buy it are a local widow called Julian, um, who has two children, one of whom... I um is a child novelist or <laughs> memoirist rather. Uh, very pretentious. Uh that sort of sets off um changes in their life, I won't say too much. And then the novel is basically all about them trying to deal with their like life as decayed gentry, trying to move around in society, trying to see what will happen next in their lives. It's not particularly plot driven <laughs> it's fair to say no but, um, and it's set yeah. during what 1938 or 9-ish isn't it that's yes good point it's uh, on the brink of war and you get mm. sort of hints uh, that war is coming although it was published before the war as well so um, mm. I think it was, was it? no 1940 it was published so they did know the war was coming or the author knew the war was coming but the characters can only guess oh yes um, and lots of eccentric eccentric is a good word for it well, that, yes. lots of eccentric, eccentric people and eccentric things happening Yes. yes. Um, so Wine of Honour is, is set the other side of the war. So the war is just finished. And it's the, the lives of various people who come from the same countryside village and their differing responses to the war being finished, uh, mainly told through the eyes of women. So there's one character, Helen, who you, you hear from in the first person, and everybody else is, is third person. It's a bit of an odd narrative, actually, um, construction. But um, so Helen has, um, been having an affair during the war with um, a man called Brian who also lives locally and uh, she's anxious about her husband coming back and he's a local doctor she doesn't know how she's going to feel this is at the beginning of the book 
And then there's various other women who, um, there's Laura who was um, in the uh, ATS with Helen and, and absolutely loved being in the ATS and loved the war because it gave her a role and something to do. And now the war's finished. She, she doesn't really know what to do with herself. And then we see some of the men coming back and how they respond differently. And it's a really fascinating look at how war affected people in different ways and the how peace wasn't necessarily peace for everybody. Mm, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started Beneath the Visiting Moon first. Mm, uh, me we too. Both read, we've both read them just for the podcast now. Um, and I was excited by the comparisons to Guide Your Daughters, and I can definitely see why it's compared to it. And I started off by thinking it's one of the best novels I've read in years. Oh, did I did, um, and I don't know. By the end, I was very conflicted because it, at first, it's, it's all the sorts of things I love. I thought it was so funny. Um, these bizarre characters. I loved Bronwyn and her mm. her pretentious childhood memoirs that she's always talking about her publisher. And I thought Cavan had this wonderful way of getting under the sort of behind the motivation of the different characters um, and sort of undermining them in the narrative. Uh, I think. It's sort of a small point, but the way she uses adverbs, I found so amusing, and I can't now think of any. <laughs> but she'll use them so so wittily to to mock the character who's just spoken, I guess. Um, but as it went on, I found less and less momentum to it, and found it a bit sort of clogged up with with what not enough moment, yeah, not enough momentum. It was um, similar conversations happening over and over again, and I couldn't quite disentangle who the different siblings were um, always because they weren't as distinct as I would like and I think what makes it different from Guide Your Daughters and I Capture the Castle to my mind is that it's in the third person and we don't have that strong first person voice carrying us through the narrative and you know giving us insight to their thoughts and things it's because it's third person it's always the author um, showing and teasing and sort of showing how silly these characters are or how fragile or how eccentric or whatever um, and maybe because of that lost a little of the heart of those other novels but I mean I still I still think the writing was really funny I re- and I probably would reread it but um, yeah it was it had all the eccentricity and none of the heart maybe is what I would summarise mm. but I think you struggled with it more than I did from the messages you sent me <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, it's fatally flawed as a novel. Um, it's it's well written, as you say, and it has moments of being really funny. Like, I loved the character of Bronwyn, the child novelist, um, and I thought she was very funnily, but also at the same time very sensitively drawn. Um, and there were also other, some other characters. Like Sarah was a very interesting character. She reminded me of... Um, a character from Rosamund Lehman's novels, that kind of sense of somebody who's on the cusp of growing up and wants to be a grown up and thinks they're a grown up, but actually is completely at sea and thinks she understands more than she does. She falls in love with this Sir Giles Merrick, who's a politician and believes him to be in love with her in return. Um, And I thought that his behavior was rather despicable as well. Um, but because she doesn't understand the cues of of the adult world, she completely misses everything, and she thinks that she's a you know she's 
allows herself to fall in love and you know that there's the character of the vague ridiculously vague mother why is it always such a vague mother in these True, the mothers are always vague aren't they um, yes. and you know he's you know yes dear yes dear and doesn't really seem to realize anything that's going on and i'm like come on that's your job you needed to have seen this and sorted this out um but it's you know i thought that was an interesting metaphor for for, for perhaps you know the way that the country slept walked into the war i don't know but um it was for me, I just felt like what you said, there's no first person narrative. There were, was no centre to the narrative, apart from I felt like Sarah was supposed to be the centre of the narrative. Yeah, she wasn't. Yeah. Um, I didn't care about any of them. I couldn't remember who any of them were. And it was, I just didn't care. It was very um, aimless, really. And I got to the end and I thought, well, hang on a minute, what actually happened? And it's quite a long book for nothing to happen. Mm, yes, it's true. Um, and it was, it, we got to the end of the narrative and we we were no really further along than we were at the beginning and I, I just felt that she had a cluster of interesting ideas and a couple of interesting characters and she didn't really know what to do with them and ultimately it never went anywhere it, it read like a very bad first draft to me yes I wouldn't go as far as very bad first draft because I still think the writing was really good but well, I the think writing yeah, is good but yeah. there's no story yeah. Simon True. Yeah. If I was if I was her editor, I'd say rewrite this in first person from Sarah, and yeah. I think then it would have been like a completely marvelous novel. Um, but yeah, as you say, it did, it did just feel a bit aimless, and and I guess yeah, a series of funny and bit strange scenes do not a novel make. <laughs> no, I think it, it would have been far more interesting if it had all been about Sarah falling in love with Sir Giles and the gradual um, realization that he is not who she thinks he is. And you wouldn't even have to lose the other characters because that's no. a really, yeah, interesting background. But you need that sort of central momentum yeah. to a novel. There needed um, to be a thrust to it, and there wasn't. They don't, even sell, they don't even sell the bloody house. I mean, literally nothing happens. <laughs> um, I mean, I love anything that's set in a crumbling mansion. But um, yes, <laughs> I found one of the adverbs that I liked. Um, and, and it also shows how amusing the quotations in it are, which... Um, the devil damn thee black, thou cream-faced loon, she said conversationally. <laughs> which I think like, conversationally is so good. And page by page, there's so many examples like that where it is just really funny. Um, and I did like how Bronwyn's always quoting generally Macbeth and Hamlet and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it did not quite live up, well, it didn't live up to the sum of its parts. Um, no. Before we talk about that more, we should talk about Wine of Honour. Um, Which is a completely different um, experience, actually. It was quite funny going from one to the other immediately uh, because they're completely different writing styles. And you do have that element of the first person in Wine of Honour, which I think works quite nicely, though it was a bit of a confusing narrative because, I, I mean, not confusing in terms of I completely understood what was happening. I just wasn't sure why Barbara Beecham had adopted that. Mm. of having this one random section and because you get different sections you're um when you're reading it you're you have like a paragraph in the third person looking at this person and then you have a few pages in the third person looking at another set of characters and then you go back to this first person narrative talking about helen um i wasn't quite sure why she'd done that yeah in fact as you say it's written very differently but i found some of the same problems in that there were just so many characters and i wasn't sure which ones we were supposed to think were the primary characters mm. i mean i guess novels don't have to have primary characters but when you start in the first person with this woman who's deciding between her husband and her lover essentially you sort of assume that's going to be the the main part of the novel and yeah. it certainly recurs a lot but there's no reason why she 
is she more important be, than yeah. Laura Watson or than Mrs. Cross or you know any number of other characters. And and again, similarly with um, Beneath Visiting Moon, I found that the characters weren't quite distinct enough, and I did have to stop for occasionally think like, how are these? Who, which one's this? How are they related? Because everyone's related in this sort of tangle of <laughs> yeah, um, which I guess you know, small villages at that time, everyone was related in it. In it. In, in a strange tangle, but um, again, it's it was um, a little more. It could have, yeah, it could have done with another edit <laughs> to make it more clear what the the main momentum of the novel was. And I should say that I mean, I I think more than you, I liked both these novels and I enjoyed reading them. But they, I always find it slightly frustrating when you read a novel and think this could be better than it is. Well, I mean, I actually really enjoyed Wine of Honor. Oh, good. Okay. Um, no, no, I did. I, 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 in fact, I would go as far to say that I, I loved it. Um, oh, well, okay. Yeah, I thought that I thought all the characters were great, and I loved the different ways in which war had affected everybody. I haven't read a book quite like this actually. Um, I mean, One Fine Day is probably the most um, prominent example of a of a post war book looking at how everyone readjusts to life, and also the village as well. I was going to say it reminded you a lot of the village, yeah. Um, but I felt for me this was a much more honest book and it felt more like the person he was Barbara Beecham was writing from experience and it felt very real and very raw to me and I agree that the the narrative could have been better I would have either gone done everybody's in the in the first person like looked at every jumped between different heads of characters or I would have made it all third person I think she needed to have made a choice there but um because Helen isn't the centre of the narrative, so it, it doesn't make sense that it's only her that's in the first person. But overall, I think it was a very searing and interesting portrayal. And I and I really got to, I felt like I knew each of the characters as individuals and all of them were characterised very well. Whereas okay. I, di- I didn't get that sense in um, between Beneath the Visiting Moon. I felt that some of the characters were better sketched out than others and I, I for example you know why did she need to have four siblings they didn't need to have four four children living in that house there were too many people that she didn't have enough to do with mm-hmm. whereas in in wine of honor everybody was there for a reason everybody was giving a different perspective of, of what post-war life was like for them so you know you had laura who who was stuck at home looking after her aging father who resent who resented the fact she was doing that and wished she were back during the war you've got Helen who was obviously emotionally affected by the war you've got um the gurneys who uh, their whole life has been changed and they have to try and find a way forward all that kind of stuff like everybody's playing a different part in looking at the at post-war life from from a particular perspective whereas beneath the visiting moon I was just like well you know what's Christopher doing what's why, what's the point of Tom who's Emily who's, you know, who's <laughs> Mrs Oxford Emily. why is yeah. she there and who's Lady Pansy and it's just all these people and I just thought for goodness sake I don't even know why you're all here yeah I definitely agree on that there were I mean the siblings I, I feel like if a bit of tightening up maybe were necessary but yes I never really worked out who all the different ladies were but I actually had the same yeah I did have the same issue with um, wine of honor i agree they were in different situations but to me i couldn't really think of any major difference in terms of the person they were between helen and laura they seemed basically the same person in different situations to me oh really possibly like the author i don't know in that you know they were intelligent slightly withdrawn women who had you know, emotional d- dependencies on people and were trying to escape them i guess but uh i don't know i've i just felt like they put like middle aged, intel- not middle aged, middle class intelligent women dealing with the things. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I don't know, um, I, I've, I've read so many novels that aren't that dissimilar to this. I mean, not all, not all sort of like in the aftermath of World War II, but lots of, you know, domestic novels of the forties, um, that it, it felt so representative of a type that I wanted it to be more distinct. And I mean, no one could argue that Beneath the Visiting Moon was not distinct. <laughs> so that, I guess that to go from something so unusual, even if not completely successful, to go to something that felt very quintessential, um, that was why I found slightly jarring, I guess. Mm. And I mean, it's not funny. It's not trying to be funny. That's, that's fair to say, I think, isn't it? Do you find it funny yeah. ever? Yeah. No, <laughs> not really. It doesn't be funny. That's fine. No. Um, but with, when we're coming to a decision, I think I will always have a soft spot for something that's trying to be funny that's versus something that isn't. <laughs> mm. Well, interesting that we've had quite different responses. Yeah. I was, expect- I was expecting you to hate the other one as well. Really? I mean, it's, it, it's, if it had been exactly what she was hoping, or if she'd done it very successfully, it would be so up my street. But, well, know. it would have been up my street too. Yeah, yeah, yeah true, true. There's certainly, there's a kernel of brilliance in there somewhere, but there's just so much mud around to get to it. You um, give up hope in the end. <laughs> yeah, I th- hmm, it's tricky because... There would, there would definitely be lines in it that I, and I would, I'd happily read Bronwyn forever. I just loved every scene. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, for example, she was brilliant. Let's do a book just with her in it, you know? Yes, yeah. There, as needed, long as it's not there the... needed to be somebody that I think I, I just felt like it was a lot of notes put together, and and nobody had been there to direct her and be like, oh, actually, do you know what? You need to sort that out. It wouldn't get published nowadays, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I think probably neither of them. <laughs> well, no. Um. Yeah, I think in the hands of someone like Elizabeth von Arnhem doing a sort of one of her more sarcastic takes on on Bronwyn would have been very searing and great. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Did it explain what the title for Wine of Honour in the book? No, it probably does in the introduction, which I didn't read. So. No, neither did I actually. Because I don't no. like to read the introduction because I find invariably it gives away the plot. So I probably meant to go back to it at the end but there because i was reading it on my kindle obviously i couldn't just flip back to the beginning so so modern in fact yes the first line in the introduction says that wine of honor takes its title from the thesaurus listing of synonyms for arrival oh okay <laughs> whereas beneath the visiting moon is from shakespeare somewhere isn't it but i can't remember they do quote it in the novel oh hang on let me let me google it <laughs> I should know this. People always say things though. You should know that you're an English teacher. I'm like, yeah, I don't have a uh, encyclopedic knowledge of Shakespeare. <laughs> oh well, there we are. It's from Antony and Cleopatra, which I've never read. So there we are. I read half of it. <laughs> I don't think either of them are very good titles, to be honest. I don't think they really make any. They don't illuminate what's in the novel, way. No. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, there we are. Well, it's no. I think it's obvious which one you you will choose out of the two. Um, yes. And I'm going to go with the Visiting Moon of the two. I, as I say, I don't think either of the novels were completely successful, although I did really enjoy reading them both. But I just, I think for what it was trying to do and for that such interesting style, I'll take interesting and adventurous style over something more run-of-the-mill. Okay. Yeah. Wow, there we are. There we are. And I mean, I prefer Miss Carter and the Ifrit to both of them, so I'd recommend that one <laughs> to go in the batch. <laughs> I know not everyone is, has my um, 
my my mindset on that. And there, yes, there are six, I think, in the new batch. So who kn- I bought most of them. So who knows what the other ones will be like? Hmm. Well, yeah. in the next episode, we are going back a little while to Jane Austen and doing Santa Turn and the Watsons, which yes. could have been really on the pulse if we don't when the TV series was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> We well. don't like to be on the pulse. That's our whole no. point. <laughs> We're slightly behind the times. Yes, and I've not read either of them yet, so it'll be fun to explore them. Well, I hope you'll they... enjoy them. Are they both unfinished? I can't remember. Yes, they are. Yeah. Yes, unfinished Jane Austen novels. Well, I think the Watsons is more juvenilia, possibly. Okay. I have them both in one book with Lady Susan, which I have read, but not the others. Yeah. So yeah, That's we'll be nice. back. For that, and yeah, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, do get in touch at tea or books at gmail.com. You could be the first person to email us because still nobody has. <laughs> please, and if yeah. if, please don't make us feel so alone. Um, and if you have any yeah questions that we can consider, advice we can give for that bit in the middle, then we are very happy to do that. Absolutely. And yeah, speak to you next time. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.